This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. For those of you that are part of our church, you, you hopefully remember that we're in a series of messages called Hang Tough. And, and um, we've been asking some convicting questions. We've been asking, what happened to us as Christians? Don't get upset, but how did we become so soft and so fragile and so thin-skinned and fearful and anxious. We've been asking, when it comes to our faith, do we have a faith that can survive tragedy? Do we have a faith that can survive unfairness and, and people and, and even church people being mean to us? Do we have a faith that can survive, as we talked about last week, prayers that aren't immediately answered? Remember Hebrews 11, the hall of faith people that they had way more faith than we do. And their prayers weren't answered in their lifetime. Do we have a faith that can survive that? Do we have a faith that can survive tough times? Well, today we want to come at this from another angle. And instead of talking about a faith that can survive the tough times, we want to see if our faith is tough enough to survive the good times. Do we have a faith that is tough enough to survive Palm Sunday? Sometimes it's way more difficult to keep our faith in the good times than it is in the bad times. Because during those good times, we begin, begin to rely on ourselves and our abilities and, and our resources, and we put more and more emphasis on pleasure and comfort, and, and those good times can cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. So today, with God's help, let's talk about a faith that hangs tough so much so that it's able to survive the good times. Now, to provide the backdrop for this lesson, we want to study two events that took place on the Monday after what we refer to as Palm Sunday. You know, as has been mentioned um, around the world today, this is Palm Sunday. It's a big Sunday. And, and on this day, uh, around 1990 years or so ago, um, they say that between 100,000 and up to 200,000 people gathered and laid down palm branches and, and, and robes, articles of clothing in front of Jesus. And, and as Pastor Darren mentioned, they shouted, Hosanna, 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 as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. They believed, again, that Christ was finally getting ready to set up his earthly throne and they would finally be rid of the hated Romans. But this day is also known as something else besides Palm Sunday. This is something that the church doesn't emphasize very much. But today is also known as Passion Sunday. Because it launches us into Passion Week. And the emphasis of Passion Sunday is vastly different than Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday emphasizes the parade and the celebration. But, but Passion Sunday reigns on that parade. Because really this parade would end up being an early funeral procession. Five days later, that crowd who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, instead of them hanging tough for Jesus, they would scatter and run and hide, and Jesus would die. Five days later, after this parade, without even so much as a word in his defense from these 200,000 people that were shouting his name. And so to do justice to this Last Sunday before Easter, we must remember that within the excitement of Palm Sunday was also the reality of Passion Sunday that would ultimately lead to the death of our Savior. 
So as we move into our lesson today, understand that the Palm Sunday parade is now over. Outwardly, this has been an amazing day. In fact, outwardly, it had the appearance of the greatest day ever in terms of outward and visible support for Jesus. But now it was late Sunday afternoon, maybe even early evening. People are on their way home. That's where we will pick up our reading in Mark chapter 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around carefully at everything. So again, Palm Sunday parade has ended. Jesus walked the short distance to the temple, spent a little bit of time looking around. And, you know, I was trying to think this week, what, what did Jesus do? It just says he went and, and looked carefully around. And I wondered if he was doing what I do uh, when I come into the church early Sunday morning. I look around, make sure everything's in order. I, I, I turn on the sound system. I check my mic to make sure it's working. I come into the sanctuary. This is my spot right here. And I spend the next 30, 40 minutes or so preparing my heart and asking God to prepare your hearts. Um, I pray that God would send in the right people that need the service. We don't know exactly what what Jesus did, but the Bible says he spent some time looking around. And then it goes on and says, and then he left because it was late in the afternoon. So catch the timeline, late in the afternoon. Then he went out to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, Bethany was about a two-mile walk from Jerusalem. And today, that would be considered a fairly long walk for most of us. If I would say, okay, right after the service gang, we're going to walk downtown to the city park, which is about, I, I clocked it this week, about a mile and a half. Two miles would be on about to where the old uh, Liston School is, was. But if I would say, hey, we're going to walk together to the city park and just hang out, maybe have lunch down by that spring that flows with water that is so clear and tastes so wonderful. Joke, joke. For those of you that are not from this area, why that is a joke. Um, but anyway... That offer to have us walk down there would cause most of us to say, oh, Joe, thanks, but no thanks. I'll pass. Most of us would have some kind of excuse. You know, my back hurts or my leg hurts or, you know, in my prime, I would have run there. Um, or, you know, maybe some would say, I don't have time to waste like that. Most of us would have some reason why to say, oh, Joe, no thanks. But 2,000 years ago, walking two miles was a short distance. So, so Jesus and his disciples, after experiencing the emotionally draining Palm Sunday activities, and then after walking to the temple, they walked another two miles to Bethany where they would spend the night. Well, after spending the night on that, on that next Monday, two very significant events would take place. The first event on that Monday was centered around a tree. Now, it was not the tree that Jesus' cross would be made out of for the crucifixion. And, and really, just, just kind of some additional information. We don't know what type of tree was used for the cross. Um, you know, I, I've read that it was dogwood. I was actually studying it this week. And, and others say, well, it had to be olive wood. Others say, no, it, it was cedar. And then there are those that say, well, the cross was actually a mixture of different woods. The Bible doesn't say, so it's all speculation. But the particular tree that got Christ's attention after that Palm Sunday had nothing to do with the cross upon which he would be placed. Rather, the tree that got his attention was a fig tree. 
And what happened was that after spending the night in Bethany, that Monday morning, Jesus and his disciples begin to head the two miles back to Jerusalem. And, and on the way out of town, the Bible says that Jesus was hungry. Evidently, where they stayed wasn't a bed and breakfast. It was just a bed without the breakfast. Again, let's let Scripture walk us through this event. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next morning, so the Monday after Palm Sunday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus felt hungry. He noticed a fig tree a little way off that was in full leaf. So he went over to see if he could find any figs on it. But there were only leaves. Because why? It was too early in the season for fruit. Catch that? Too early for fruit. Verse 14, then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. Hmm. And the disciples heard him say it. Now, let me just, I'll just be really transparent with you. This scripture has probably caused me to scratch my head in confusion as much or more than any other passage in the Bible. Because initially, it almost appears that Jesus got up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. Seriously, he sees a fig tree and, and after noticing that it didn't have any fruit on it, even though I emphasized in scripture that it was too early in the season to have fruit on it, yet it appears that this just kind of sets Jesus off. And, and so some translations say that he cursed the tree. Now, he didn't curse. He cursed the tree, which basically would have meant that he spoke a curse on the tree so that it would die. And, and six verses later in verse 20, it says that indeed, the next morning as people walked by that tree, they saw that the tree had withered from its roots all in a 24-hour period. And by the way, if, if you're a tree hugger, don't feel sorry for the fig tree. Rather, if you want to feel sorry for a tree, save your sympathy for the tree the Romans used to build a cross upon which Christ would be crucified. But that's another topic for another day. Back to the fig tree. In that part of the world, fig trees usually bore figs twice a year. Um, when I was in high school, my, uh, my parents lived in, in Arkansas, about 90 miles southeast of, of Little Rock, in, in what's called rice and, and, and duck country, rice and duck capital of the world. And um, we happen to have fig trees in our backyard. And a lot of people don't like figs. How many of you like figs? How many of you do not like figs? Uh, and some of you don't know what a fig is. Um, but, but some people don't, don't like figs because they don't like the, the, the texture. But I, um, I, I, love, I love figs. And so, you know, during the fruit-bearing season, I would love walking. It was about 10 steps from our back door to our, our fig trees. And, and I would go out there and just... Uh, pop them in my mouth. In fact, my mom used to make uh, preserves out of them, mix them with strawberries, and that was amazing. And they're in, in the state of Arkansas. Some would call it the country of Arkansas. But there in Arkansas, we would call that larapin. Anybody ever hear the word larapin? Some of you just really need to come out of your shell and get out in society more and learn some new vocabulary. But, but there in Arkansas, our, our fig trees only bore fruit one time a year. But in Israel, you could count on fig trees producing two crops of figs each year. And, and on the protected side of the Mount of Olives, where that fig tree was, it would, it would not be unusual to have the fig trees leaf out in the month of March, even though the fruit would probably not fully ripen for a couple of months yet. 
Well, when Jesus arrived at the tree, he looked for figs because the Bible says it was in full leaf. He found none. Again, why? Because it was too early in the season. Now, the question I want to ask, why was Jesus so upset at this fig tree? Have you thought about it? Have you figured this out? Um, I mean, when you think about it, the tree was just following the laws of nature that God himself had established. So why did Jesus get so upset at this fig tree and kill it? Well, the theological and scholarly answer is that this was, in a sense, a foretelling and prophecy of what would happen to Jerusalem. But instead of the theological answer, let me give some down-to-earth insight as to why I believe Jesus was so upset that this tree did not have any fruit on it. And when I was studying this passage, I'll just be honest, I, I, I was struggling to make sense of this. And, and, and I was just meditating and, and thinking and, and praying over this lesson. And all of a sudden, you, you, know, you know, you've had those times when it just jumps out at you. And um, so it just jumped out at me and kind of brought some clarity. But one of the reasons that I believe this barren fig tree upset Christ so much is because very possibly what had happened during the Palm Sunday parade was still on his mind. And, and I need you to track with me here. Outwardly, the Palm Sunday parade was fabulous. A lot of people, as I said, 100,000, maybe 200,000 people lining the streets that day. And, and you would think that Jesus would have come out of that Sunday feeling pretty good about his ministry. And when we have a, a good Sunday here at the church and when people are engaged and the Spirit of the Lord is here and, and I sense God's anointing and our numbers are decent, I leave here feeling good. That is until the predictable attack from Satan comes my way Sunday evening. And, and you know, it, it's predictable. And as you pray for me, a lot of you pray for me every day. Thank you. Pray for me during the week. But, but I'm generally hit hardest by Satan's Sunday evening, and you know, I've given my heart and soul during the week studying and preparing, and I preach twice Sunday morning, and, and by evening I feel empty, and, and I think Satan knows that, and so he brings to mind all of the dumb things I said, and he brings to mind all of the good things I should have said, but I've said before, it's almost like every Sunday evening I, I'm ready to resign and go flip burgers or dig ditches or even just watch grass grow. I mean, anything but pastor. But that's off topic. But you would assume that Jesus would have felt pretty good about that Sunday. The numbers were good. I've never had those kinds of numbers in my ministry. The people were engaged. They weren't just staring blankly, like sometimes happens in church. They were engaged, they were excited, they were participating. It was a good day to be a follower of Jesus. But the Palm Sunday parade hadn't left Jesus on a high. Why? Because Jesus looked beyond the Hosannas and beyond those shouting his name, and he knew that the majority of the people weren't tough enough in their faith to survive the good times of that Palm Sunday. As he looked into their hearts, even though they looked good and sounded good and had good intentions. He knew that their commitment was shallow. And so he saw beyond the excitement. He saw a people who wanted a king to selfishly save them from the Romans, but they didn't want a king to save them from their sins. 
And I believe Jesus was troubled as he understood that the whole Palm Sunday parade would end up being empty and meaningless. And therefore, that Monday morning as Jesus came upon that fig tree that looked so good because it was in full leaf, I just wonder if Jesus wasn't reminded of that crowd that looked good on the outside, but on the inside there was no substance, there was no fruit. And I probably just need to stop here and call a time out and remind us from this fig tree lesson that God is able to see who we really are. Did you know that? You can fool me. I can fool you. We can't fool him. God is able to see the softness and the lack of substance. He looks past the smile. He looks past the Sunday morning pretending. He knows if there's sin in our lives. He knows if there's any unforgiveness in our heart. He knows if there's phoniness and hypocrisy and pride. He sees if our walk really matches our talk. And, and he's not impressed with little religious cliches or pro-God statements. God wants people that will hang tough and survive even the good times when everything seems to be going our way. Well, that's the first incident on the Monday after Palm or Passion Sunday. The next incident that took place on this same Monday was another incident that you've heard about. Let's review it in Mark eleven fifteen. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, that's after they'd spent the night in Bethany and after having the encounter with the barren fig tree, after the two-mile walk, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the stalls of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from bringing in merchandise. He taught them the scriptures, declare, my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now, again, look at the big picture. This just seems more confirmation that Jesus was having a really bad day. He got upset at a fig tree that didn't have any fruit on it and cursed it so that it died within a matter of hours. And now as he goes to the temple, it appears that there's something that really sets him off. And to help us get into this setting, I want to read after Peter Marshall. Some of you would recognize this name. In the early 30s and 40s, Peter Marshall was a pastor in Washington, D.C. He also served as U.S. Senate chaplain for a couple of year period in the late 40s. There have been books and movies you've probably seen about him. He was amazing, an amazing man of God. But let me read a few paragraphs that he wrote that bring so much life to this incident at the temple that day. He writes this. It is early morning, but already the temple court is a bedlam of activity and noise. Among the tables of the money changers, the cages of doves, and the stalls of cattle... People are crowding about, chatting with their friends, selecting a dove for sacrifice, getting their money from countries like Persia, Egypt, or Greece exchanged into the sacred half shekel of the sanctuary. It's convenient. It's convenient to buy sacrifices on the spot instead of having to drag them from a distance. It's helpful to be able to exchange money bearing upon it the head of the emperor, which was a graven image and therefore unacceptable in the temple for the statutory half shekel. And so convenient for all and profitable to many, the temple huckstering has become a recognized institution. Shrill voices, arguing, bickering, swearing angrily in the temple. The metallic tinkle of coins as they drop into the money boxes on the table. All the signs of greed can be heard just outside the holy place. There's no serenity. 
No peace. No one can pray there. Suddenly there's a lull in the confusion. Startled at the sudden quiet, we look up to find a a strange yet hauntingly familiar figure standing between two of the gigantic stone columns. It's Jesus. His face burning with intensity. His face magnificent in its wrath. As he steps forward with a resolution and firmness born of the terrible conviction within him, there's a look in his eyes before which men break away. His lips are drawn into a thin line. Stooping down, he picks up some binding cords which the merchants have discarded and and deftly knots them into a whip. There's something in his attitude, in his eyes, in his face, in that ominous silence in which he stands watching, which makes men look at him with uneasiness in their eyes. And then the full fury of his wrath breaks. In a few long strides, he is across the court, picking up the boxes filled with money, scornfully and deliberately He empties them on the stone floor and the coins spill with a clatter, rolling off in a hundred different directions. Tables go crashing to the floor and the money changers rush to gather up their coins from the filth. In their greed, made all the more frantic because of their fear, they grovel in the dirt, pouncing upon their money as the man with the whip stands over them. And then... He drives out the terror-stricken cattle. The muscles of his arms stand out like cords. Lights Lights dart from his eyes. Not a voice is heard in protest. Not a hand is raised against him. Even the temple guards only stand and watch helplessly. His magnificent figure dominates the scene. His voice rings out, echoing among the stone pillars, and sounds like the voice of God himself. It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, this account in the Bible, so powerfully illustrated by Peter Marshall, is one of the few times where we see Jesus angry. In fact, he was more than angry. He was furious. But why? What triggered this outburst? Let's find out. The Jewish temple where this incident occurred was a magnificent structure. It soared roughly 15 stories above the Kidron Valley to the east. It was a huge structure, nearly 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. The outer court of the temple was nearly the size of 48 college basketball courts. The temple had basically become a shopping mall. Pins of sheep, goats, doves, and other animals for sacrifice were everywhere. Money changers operated several of the tables, and in one sense, these merchants provided a needed service. Worshippers had come from great distances, and they were expected to offer animal sacrifices and financial gifts at the temple, and these pilgrims found it convenient. But, but what had started out as a convenience turned into a very profitable money-making scheme. And and the priests and local politicians maintained strict control over franchises in the temple area. They often demanded a kickback in the temple of God. Once merchants had a corner on the market, they felt free to do as they pleased. And 
money changers would charge high fees to exchange shekels for pagan coins, and likewise those who sold sacrificial animals would mark up their prices. And just in case someone got the wise idea to set up a competing market elsewhere and undercut the temple sellers, the priests had that covered too. Because before an animal could be sacrificed, it had to pass a temple inspection, and the priests would simply reject any animal that didn't come with a licensed merchant uh, from a licensed merchant. The whole system was filled with corruption. And there stands Jesus, surveying it all. He's angry. These merchants, these politicians, the priests have taken that which was intended to be pure and holy and they've corrupted it under the feet of their own personal agendas and they presume that God didn't care. And because they presumed God didn't care, they did what they wanted to with the things of God. But I want to emphasize this morning, God does care. Back in the Old Testament, God told his people how he wanted things handled. For example, when, when the tabernacle was first constructed, God gave explicit instructions about how everything was to be built and carried out. This is so fascinating. His instructions were so explicit that he even told them where to get fire to burn incense. But Nadab and Abihu, those of you that were raised in church, you perhaps remember two of the sons of Aaron, the high priest, who were also the nephews of Moses. They decided that they had a better idea. And, and so they got fire from a different place and, and they offered it in the tabernacle. And, and um, the Bible says that when they offered that strange fire, that fire went out from the Lord, devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. And what's so interesting, and, and I can't even fathom this, but it was such a serious matter that God commanded Moses and Aaron not to mourn the death of these boys. There was to be no sackcloth, no, no ashes, which was typical at a funeral. And, and, and these priests, these sons of Aaron, had been raised in a way in which they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they were doing something wrong. They knew what God wanted, but they disobeyed him anyway. So the temple that was supposed to be a place of worship and a place of prayer had become the center of commerce. In fact, the temple activities had become so commercialized that very little worship actually took place at the temple. And again, I wonder if Jesus wasn't still thinking about the events that had taken place the day before at the parade where there was celebration and as I said, it was a good day to follow Jesus, but as he walked into the house of God, it hit him again. There's a lot of activity, a lot of noise, no fruit. There was no substance, no worship, no prayer. Their faith had not carried over nor survived the Palm Sunday celebration. You know, I don't want to put everybody in, into this category. Many of you are, are, are the exceptions. You're amazing followers of Jesus that are way closer to God than I'll ever be. But it appears that our Christianity in America has become very commercialized. And, and instead of being evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, or temperance. It seems that many times the only evidence of our Christianity in our lives is found in our symbols. And let me explain. You know, today there are more Christian symbols than ever before, from, you know, scripture bracelets to crosses around our necks or in our homes. And, you know, I was in someone's home that never had anything outwardly to do with church. They had two to three dozen crosses in their home. And I'm not against any of that. 
But sometimes I fear that Christ has been reduced to a bunch of symbols. And because we're wearing a cross or we have one hanging in our home or because we happen to have a little plastic or rubber scripture bracelet around our wrist, we begin to think that we're really making a big statement for God. And I know that some of those things can be good and healthy reminders to us, but I sometimes worry that those symbols, for some of us, it's about the only substance that we have in our lives. Did you know that the Pharisees were really into symbols? And for example, they wore phylacteries, which are little boxes that, that contained scripture. They, they had one box, and if we go to that picture there, it had one box that uh, would uh, be on their on their forehead. If we go to the next slide, please. Um, just one more. Anyway, they, they had boxes that were on, on, their, on their forehead, and then they would sometimes have boxes on, on their wrist, and, and they were called phylacteries. And, and, um, and this right here was just, you know, a, a symbol that they were godly, and they would put scripture in those. And, and um, it, it was many times just hollow. Here, here we go, right there. And, and you can just see, there, there is, that's, that little box is full of, of scripture on their forehead. And uh, then right here is another one. And, and this one actually has eight, but I think typically they, they have like seven cords wrapped around their, their arm, their, their wrist, their hand. And uh, it, initially they started out wearing them as, as healthy reminders of God's word. You know, the one on their forehead was to make sure that God was prominent in their thought life. And, and the one on their arm was to make sure that their activities were God honoring. But, but what happened is that eventually those symbols became a substitute for God himself. And, and scripture said that their hearts and their minds and even their activities were far from God honoring. So if you're into crosses, if you're into wristbands and Christian symbols, that's okay. You don't have to stop that. But just remember that those Christian symbols on or around you cannot be a substitute for the real thing, which is Jesus Christ living in you. If you were raised in church, some of you would remember a very powerful incident that took place with the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. They, they, were, they were a lot like church people. They were complainers. And I know you're the exception, but other churches have a problem with this. We don't here, but a lot of churches have complainers and griping. And, and so one day God had pretty much had his fill of their griping and complaining. So remember what God did? He sent a plague of snakes. A plague of snakes. And they were poisonous snakes. They were biting these people, these complainers. And and uh, people were dying like flies. And, uh, and so in a symbol that pointed ahead to Jesus being lifted up on the cross, Moses came to God, said, God, what do we do? And would you intervene? And, and so God told Moses to make a snake out of brass and elevate it on a pole. And again, pointing ahead to the cross. And he said, tell the instruct the people that if they've been bitten by those poisonous snakes, they are to look up at that snake and, and, and they would be healed. And, and so this serpent, this brass copper serpent was made in obedience to God's instructions. Understand that. But, but if you study the history of that brass bronze snake over the next 300 years, you find that that symbol that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ became an idol to the people. And they began to worship that snake as a god, as an idol. 
300 years later, if you study scripture, Hezekiah said, we've got to do something with this snake that had gone from a symbol of healing to an idol. And so Hezekiah, during his reign, he smashed that snake to smithereens. And that's one of the problems with us as church people today. You know, we take something good and, and godly and wholesome and we make it into a tradition that many times becomes sacred and at times even pushes God out. Paul, we're quick to develop traditions. We're quick to say, but we've always done it this way before. And... Um, just kind of a humorous example, last week we, uh, we, we changed our offering box out there in the foyer, you know, the one that we had a couple years ago when COVID hit, why we didn't pass the hat anymore or pass the bag anymore, and so we, we had this box out there, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I like it, it saves, you know, having to take time to pass the, the offering plate here, and, but anyway, we've had this little box for the last couple of years on, on the counter there, the Welcome Center. And, uh, you know, it didn't lock or anything like that. And it was just uh, if somebody would put it there during the week, why, you know, it was just available. You could open it, take it. And so we got one that would lock it. And to just show you how quickly we, we take something and, and it develops into a tradition, we had a little bit of pushback from people who said, but I like that old box. I'm, I'm serious. And nobody said, well, I'm going to leave the church over this new box thankfully, but we had a little bit of pushback, but I like that one better. And, you know, it's interesting how quickly we develop traditions and then elevate them on the level of of God. And so when Jesus walked into that temple and saw how misdirected and shallow their worship had become in just a short time, you know, it, it, it angered him because God had God had been pushed out of his own house. And so on this uh, Palm Sunday, this Passion Sunday morning, while we're enjoying uh, the excitement of this Easter season, let's not, let's not be like that fig tree where we look good but have no fruit. And let's not be like the money changers into appearances, but far from God. Let's not allow ourselves to go through the Easter high, but then discover that our faith is not tough enough to survive these days around Easter when it's easy and natural for us to want to get closer to Him. And and it just happens every year. And I'm thankful that, you know what, we we have kind of an interest in, 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 in... worshiping Jesus and and all across the country church attendance is big it's strong and and it's natural but Jesus wants our faith to be tough he wants our faith to be strong he wants us to celebrate on Palm Sunday and celebrate on Easter Sunday but then he's wanting us to have staying power beyond that he wants a faith that is engaged year-round Tough enough to survive Palm Sunday and tough enough to survive go beyond Easter. So as we get ready to celebrate this next Sunday, let's spend some time before we leave asking God to give us a faith that will endure beyond this season of celebration. And if you have not 
if you are not in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, my message to you is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of forgiveness. God gives you forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ kills sin. Kills sin. And you can have peace with God. Would you just bow your heads, please? Would you just let the Holy Spirit speak to you a few seconds here before we pray? And if you have something in your heart and life that shouldn't be there, would you just ask forgiveness? And if you're one of those that maybe is a little bit shallow and into appearances, but not a lot of substance there, would you just maybe ask God to forgive you and, and give you the staying power that you could have uh, Jesus in your heart, worshiping Him, solid, strong, year-round. Would you just pray that to Him right now? Is there anybody here, just nobody looking, that would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I've got some needs. Just, you know, lift your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. God's spoken to me. I thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Palm Sunday, but thank you for Passion Sunday that balances out the celebration with the reality. God, uh, help us to have substance in our lives. Help us to have, um, to do away with the show and the pretending that we would be people, God, with character, with integrity, but with Jesus. Lord, those who raise their hands, I pray that they would just seek you. Um, Father, right now, your word says that, you know, if we seek you, you will be found. We can find you. Now, God, I just pray that as we go through this week, that we would uh, celebrate, but yet, Lord, we would be so mindful of the suffering that took place. Lord, the Good Friday, the uh, reality of the cross, the death, the suffering, the scourgings, the floggings, the crown of thorns, Lord, and then carrying the whole spiritual burden of the world. Oh, carry my sin and your sin. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of that, and, and instead of just being all about, uh, you know, Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and the chocolate and all of the fun, the family get-togethers, all of that, God, we're, we're grateful that we can do that, but Lord, don't let us lose sight of the fact that Easter is about a death, but it's about a resurrection. It's about Jesus and all of the other stuff that we do during Easter. It's just a side benefit. But Lord, let us remember the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus died. Jesus crucified. But Jesus resurrected, living, living forever. So God, just change us. Make us your servants with staying power, surviving the good days. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Have an amazing week. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, be nice to each other. When you're leaving the parking lot, be courteous, respectful. Don't run into in anybody. And, uh, but before you do that, go to Sunday school. You're dismissed.
You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.